Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, I'm Shimilani. Of the many hopeful developments in psychedelic research in recent years, perhaps the most important is that FDA approval of MDMA for treating post-traumatic stress disorder appears likely within the next 12 months. My guest today on Raise the Line, Dr. Michael Mithoffer, is a leading figure in psychedelic-assisted therapy who spearheaded clinical trials of MDMA-assisted therapy for more than 20 years, leading most recently to the completion of successful Phase three trials treating PTSD. He is also a senior leader at the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, Public Benefit Corporation, which has led this groundbreaking research. He and his wife, Annie, completed the first MAP-sponsored Phase two clinical trial testing MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for crime-related PTSD and subsequent studies with military veterans, firefighters, and police officers, as well as a pilot study treating couples. He has been medical monitor for a series of phase two trials, which produced data that led to FDA breakthrough therapy designation. I recently met Dr. Mithoffer at the Psychedelic Science 2023 conference in Denver, and I'm looking forward to continuing our conversation about the current and future state of psychedelics as a treatment modality. So Dr. Mithoffer, thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you, Shiv. Good to see you again. That was a wild time in Denver, eh? <laughs> yeah, I, we were just talking right before we hit record. I just published this recap of psychedelic science in Forbes a couple of days ago. And I think the best way to describe it in my mind is the Society for Neuroscience Conference meets Burning Man. Uh, I'd actually love your, your, your take on maybe let's start with that before we go into your background. You know, how have you decompressed or integrated since that conference? Well, you know, it's always been a feature of MAPS that they've been interested in things like harm reduction and drug policy on one hand at the same time as doing really rigorous research. And now the research has been handed off to the subsidiary Maps Public Benefit Corporation. But it was the, the main thing I met by wild time was how many people, more than 12,000 people showed up and I, they had to turn people away. And just looking back at our first psychedelic science conference in San Jose many years ago, we had uh, 800 people or 900 people, I think. So it's it's a sign of the times. And I think there's actually the ratio of hard science and clinical research to other interests in psychedelics was actually, I think, higher this time. It, there was even more, I think, scientific research presented than in the beginning. So I think thought it was quite amazing to have that many people interested in this and a lot of serious clinicians and researchers. So it's a it's a sign of how far this field has come over the last 20 years. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was very impressed with the people I had met and the, the speakers. You had the NIMH director, who's going to be on the podcast in a couple of weeks, as well as the CEO of Burning Man Project. <laughs> so you had all up and down the spectrum. But, you know, and the governor of Colorado. <laughs> and yeah, both the governor of Colorado and the former governor of Texas. So bipartisan support for the work you guys have been have been leading. I'm sure it felt a bit like a de like the desert for for many years in the in the beginning, but we'll get right into that too because I'd love to hear your take having been leading this work for so long. So, before we go into that, you know, we, we you know, given that so many of our audience are early stage healthcare professionals, I think they'd be interested in hearing about your background. What got you interested in medicine and then when you were in med school, why did you choose psychiatry? Yeah, well, I didn't choose psychiatry when I was in med school. I I chose internal medicine which was my first residency. And then I actually practiced emergency medicine for 10 years. And then in 1991, I, I, I was getting more and more interested in like what was, what was going on before people arrived in the emergency department. 
And it was so much of it was psychological challenges leading to trauma, violence, overdoses, diseases of of lack of self-care, that kind of thing. So in 91, I went back and did psychiatry residency. So that's what kind of drove me in that direction, partly being more interested in what the antecedents of the problems, but also I, I really felt interested in a different way of working with people. You know, in the ER, it was very useful that I was doing things to people all the time, putting tubes in to make them breathe or that kind of thing. But I, over time, I longed for a more collaborative relationship to kind of work with people on on these issues. So that that's why I went into psychiatry. And actually, well, when I was looking for a, where, where to go with my career, I read a read a book by Stan Stanislav Grof, who was one of the early premier LSD psycho LSD researchers, psychiatrists from Prague, and then Johns Hopkins, and it was actually reading Stan Groff's compelling reports of all his work with psychedelics in a in a serious medical way before they were illegal, that really, I thought that was very much in line with what, what I was interested in. So it was really, I kind of went into psychiatry originally with an interest in this idea of how do you shift consciousness for the purposes of healing and growth. Wow, that's fascinating. I didn't know that backstory. And, you know, before we go into into once you've finished as a psychiatrist and how you got into psychedelic research, you know, I've gone back to med school after a career in education entrepreneurship, and it's been quite an adjustment. I'm curious, after having a successful practice as internal medicine, emergency medicine, how did it feel going back to residency as a psychiatrist day one being, you know, were you hazed at all? And how, how was that? Oh, um, it was pretty annoying. <laughs> <laughs> have to get up in the middle of the night all the time and and go admit patients and be a resident again. But at the same time, it was exciting because I was learning so many new things. Yeah, no, that's great. And it's definitely a theme we've had on this podcast of people who've had so-called non-traditional or zigzag careers. And I always have a lot of respect for people who you know are willing to do that. And it takes a lot of putting the ego aside and, and starting again and not not buying into the sunk cost fallacy. So let's go into, you know, you, you become a psychiatrist, you've already gone in with this interest in consciousness and Stan Groff's work. You know, can you walk us through what happened leading you to joining MAPS and, and getting involved in MDMA research? Yeah, well, when I went to when I went to psychiatry residency, I also enrolled in the Groff training. Because Stan Groff has a training in not in LSD anymore, because that's not legal, but in using holotropic breath work as another technique for shifting consciousness in a very similar way. So I was doing them simultaneously, which is very interesting, going to California a couple of weeks at a time and getting the training and the breath work and transpersonal psychology, and then coming back to the Institute of Psychiatry at the Medical University of South Carolina and seeing, seeing the contrast. And so I came out of that thinking, well, we, we can't do it with psychedelics now, but the breath work is very powerful which it is. It's really, I think, quite comparable in many ways, but but obviously different. So my wife then went, and who's a nurse, my wife Annie went and did the training with Stan later. And then we started, when I started my psychiatry practice, we started doing holotropic breathwork groups every month. And there was a lot of back and forth. People would come to the breathwork, and then they might want to come do some individual work in the office, or they might come see me as a patient in the office, and then decide, you know, they'd like to try breath work. So my our practice together was very much informed by Stan Groff's ideas and by an interest in 
not just um, talking about things, we did talk about things, but having having a shift of consciousness to maybe allow something new to happen. So for 10 years, we assumed that we had to do it just with breath work. And then over time, I became more and more impatient with the fact that we weren't even investigating these other possibilities. And so that's, it was, I never really intended to be a researcher, although I've been one for more than 20 years now. I was kind of forced into it by the need of the patients we were seeing. You know, people are showing up suffering and we had reason to believe these other tools might be helpful. And it just didn't seem even ethical not to be investigating them at least. So that's that's kind of why we went in the direction. And and I knew about maps from when I was in the breathwork training. So I figured Rick Dobbin was the person to ask. Well, at first I thought I'd have to go to an offshore island nation or something to do the research. And I approached Rick in January of 2000. And he said, you can do it here and we'll help you. So Rick and I have been working on this ever since ever since then wow and he's been he was working for many years before that yeah i know we had rick on the podcast a couple months ago actually right after your your second phase three successful clinical trial was announced in january and yeah obviously incredible story of working on this for you know 40 years getting a phd at harvard to do this work (laughs) right (laughs) yeah yeah exactly and oh talk about commitment i'm curious too so so one thing Rick talked about was being in this desert for a long time, right? Being that on, you know, the crazy one or the one who's not accepted by the traditional medical community. And there's a lot of pioneers in medicine who have had to face that. Obviously, you know, sepsis treatment or uh, another one that comes to mind is the Nobel laureate who, who discovered H. pylori causes gastric ulcers. You know, his colleagues thought he was crazy. When we met at MAPS or at the Psychedelic Science Conference a couple of weeks ago, you did mention, you know, some of the not being accepted at MUSC in the academic community. I'd love to hear kind of for our audience, some of whom may be in positions where they aren't understood by their colleagues or peers when they're trying to innovate and do the right thing for their patients. I'd just love to hear any, you know, maybe that story, if you can share it, as well as any sources of perseverance and persistence that you drew upon to keep doing this work for as long as you have to get to the point where now we have 12,000 people, tons of nature and journal and JAMA papers about it. Yeah. Well, it's been an interesting journey. Yeah. First, it was very controversial and no one, you know, most people in academia wanted nothing to do with it. And I did, as you alluded to the fact that, well, first we thought we were going to try to do the research at the medical school and the research center, but then it became clear they didn't want it to happen there. So we, we got permission from FDA to do it in our office. But then when my clinical privileges came along to be, you know, my clinical faculty appointment, came along, it was not renewed. And, you know, there were people on the committee who just thought they should have nothing to do with anything like this. So that went on for quite a long time. And ironically, now a couple of few years ago, the same medical school, Medical University of South Carolina, asked us to help them with their developing a world-class psychedelic research treatment and training center. So it's, <laughs> but it's been, that's a huge shift. So I, I, you know, for many years it was hard to get anybody to take this seriously, or most people. Now it feels as if I'm trying to get people to calm down a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> it's great, but it's not magic. So it's been that kind of a journey, and you know, kind of. I, I guess what kept me going is well, it was an adventure. It was often frustrating, many obstacles, many 
delays, years of delays and kind of one obstacle after another. But it was exciting because I felt, you know, this makes so much sense. It's got to happen eventually. So I don't know when, but so on the one hand, it was frustrating. On the other hand, maybe I'm perverse enough to have felt that I think Rick and I both felt, well, if we're causing this consternation in this system that isn't working very well in the first place, this medical system that has a lot of problems, maybe we're on the right track. So just keep going. So we were actually kind of emboldened by the resistance of anything. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. There's a great book by Nicholas Nassim Taleb, who's written The Black Swan and Skin in the Game, among other great books. Anti-Fragile is the book's name. And the whole concept is there, there are things or, or people who are fragile, right? They get stress and they break. There's things that are resilient, stress, and they maintain. And then there's things that are anti-fragile, stress, and they get stronger. And it sounds like MAPS and, and the work you and you and uh, Rick have been doing for years, sort of anti-fragile, the, the more the clamor against what you guys were doing was the more maybe faith you had in what you were doing, which is uh, maybe I'm projecting, but it seems like maybe MAPS is, certainly seems like an anti-fragile organization. It, it did feel that way, yeah. <laughs> So, so again, we've culminated in this huge 12,000 person conference with tons of great research coming out of it. A lot of promise, a lot of hype. We can talk about some of the hype too. And as you said, it's not a magic pill people can swallow, but where do you see it going now over the next, you know, I introduced you, you said maybe we're expecting FDA approval in the next year. What are some of the promises and opportunities, but also challenges you're seeing for the next couple of years to actually get this to be a mainstream therapy? Yeah. Well, it's a very interesting time in that regard, I think, because we don't know, of course, but it seems highly likely that MDMA, well, MDMA won't be approved. MDMA-assisted therapy has a good chance of being approved for PTSD. So it's quite unique in that way. We're not talking about it just approving a drug. It's a, a treatment package with a lot of therapy included with the drug. In fact, in our trials, MDMA is only taken three times a month apart with lots of therapy for preparation and support and then integration. So I think now the question is going to be, if it's approved, how does it fit into this medical system we have, which I think is quite dysfunctional, especially with mental health. We've got lots of limitations and problems and lots of, you know, our diagnostic system is needs a lot of work. There's a lot to be learned in psychiatry especially, I would say. So I think we're already, there are already many discussions about, okay, if this is so successful, so so effective for some people, and if it's approved, how does it fit into the session where we're used to the system, where we're used to these short visits, and and this is a much different approach. So I think the, to me, the, the challenge is going to be not to try to distort the treatment to fit the system. Obviously, we need to figure out how to make it work from a practical point of view. I don't mean to not think about that deeply, but I think there's a real danger of missing the reality that this is quite different from the way we've been doing things. And it can't be necessarily fit neatly into the schedules we've been having. And it tends to, it involves much more therapy up front than other treatments because it's so concentrated. But we already have data from several healthcare economics papers 
Elliot Marseille at the University of San Francisco has written a couple of those, showing with our data that this could be very cost effective. It just takes a few years. So for one thing, there's going to be a challenge in the beginning. If there's a demand for this, it's going to put more tax, it's going to tax the system more to find the time, a way to treat those people. If it pans out and it's as effective as our research results have, have suggested and is durable, then it'll actually, it may lighten the load on the health, mental health system eventually. But during that transition, it's going to be a challenge, I think. And that's that's our next challenge to really, you know, because there are lots of pressures. We want to make sure it's accessible and that everyone who needs it can get it regardless of ability to pay. That's a strong mission for, for MAPS and MPBC. So there's a lot of pressure to simplify, shorten, make it less expensive, which makes sense. But there's a real danger if if people don't appreciate the importance of the support and the integration therapy, then I think that's going to be a problem. Because I think there's we do have data showing that this can very help people a great deal in, the, in our trials, at least. And we, I also think there are risks. I mean, I know there are risks, like any treatment, but I don't want to underestimate the importance of proper preparation and support during the sessions and help integrating afterwards to maintain the, the safety record that we've had. So I think that's going to be the problem, sorting out how do we make, it's great to make it more cost-effective. There are lots of ways that we may do that. Group therapy may be part of it. There's We're hoping that there's going to be a group therapy starting in Portland soon. So I think there are lots of ways to make it more cost-effective, but we've got to beware of the danger of going too far in that direction and having it backfire. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And it seems like a lot of the cost or, or challenges comes from actually just how, you know, how many sessions one has to do with therapists and two therapists, right? And so I know one of the main things you've been helping with is training a lot of therapists in the protocols. Maybe you can comment on that and like what, what makes a good therapist? Many of our audience may be interested in getting this certification at some point. And how are you thinking about scaling that out? So we have maybe clinician extenders, people, you know, I know chaplains have been shown to be a really good potential source of, of, of the right type of person to lead these therapy sessions, or at least be the second observer or co-pilot. But you obviously we don't have enough psychiatrists out there and probably won't have enough psychiatrists to, to really scale this out directly. So yeah, I would love to hear your thoughts on that that training aspect. Yeah, well, just to clarify the terms, we have trained a lot of the research therapists over the years. All the people that have worked on the research have had a rather robust training in our training program. Now that in between the research and approval, we're, we're not allowed to train anybody, but we are doing educational events to help help people get educated about it, including practitioners. So. We don't know what that's going to look like exactly. I do agree. You know, it certainly doesn't take a psychiatrist to do all this. We're going to, there have to be prescribers, mostly physicians, probably, who know about the medicine and can, can be responsible for the medical part. But there are, you know, other therapists and perhaps other people with, with appropriate experience could be very good as support people. So, that's really a work in progress. And our goal is to, you know, 
it's, that's one of the big challenges is to make sure if it's approved that we can train therapists using it or train adequately and that we can train and we can do that as, as fast as possible without losing quality. And we've experimented with some of the limits over the years. You know, we I'm convinced if we go too fast and it gets too big and impersonal, it's going to backfire. And I think there are also ethical considerations. There's reason to think people are more vulnerable, you know, for ethical violations when they're taking these kinds of medicines. And maybe therapists are more vulnerable to thinking there are saviors. And so they go off course, you know. So for all those reasons, it's important to have really, really good training for therapists and build community and ongoing peer support and consultation, that kind of thing. So there's a lot of thought and work going into what that's going to look like. MAPS and MAPS Public Benefit are going to want to increase their training program as much as possible. We're also very interested in collaborating with other groups that have the capacity to train people so that there are local and regional hubs of places where people can get training and ongoing supervision and ongoing communities to support each other as therapists. Also, I'm looking forward to the day when psychiatry residents and psychology graduate students get this training while they're in training. I'm hoping that'll be coming along before too long. And there are already some important universities working on in that direction. Yeah, absolutely. I know it. at Hopkins, where I'm back in med school, Dr. Bit Yaden, the psychiatrist, we had her on the podcast. She speaks highly of you, I think has worked, has gone through your trainings as well, is helping set up some of that and getting more med students involved and hopefully psychiatry residents too. So I know Berkeley has a center for psychedelics and California has the Institute for Integrative Studies where a lot of training is done. How do you see it? You know, Do you have any estimates of how many therapists we may need in the next decade, assuming this gets approved? There are people at Maps Public Benefit Corporation that have lots of estimates. I don't know what the latest are, but uh, you know, there's thought that we we need thousands of therapists pretty quickly if if the demand is what is expected. And so I think there's going to be a, you know that's going to be one of the limiting factors. How to get it paid for is going to be a challenge, but also how to have enough therapists. So that's going to be a, difficult if we get approval and there many people that want and need it and we can't provide it fast enough, that's probably going to be the case, I'm guessing. But we need to really work hard on that, but, but not go too fast and lose quality. Yeah. Is my opinion. That makes sense. And, you know, two, two follow-up questions on the training. I'm, I'm curious, you know, what, what makes a good therapist, in your opinion, for, for this particular psychedelic-assisted therapy? That's question one. And number two is there's obviously a lot of activity in the underground, right? Like, you know, shamans, gurus, and, and others, some who are indigenous and some who are just people who took it upon themselves to help other people with, with protocols they've read about or, or maybe citizen science type work. We had Jim Fadiman on the podcast over a year and a half ago, and he, he's a big advocate for citizen science and, and, you know, engaging with that community. I would just love to hear, again, one, what makes a good therapist? And number two is what's your thoughts on the on the underground and what we can learn from them, or maybe it's dangerous to have that going on? I don't know. Yeah, well, I think what makes a good psychedelic therapist is a huge lap, overlap between that and what makes a good therapist in general. So I think experience, the capacity to be curious and to have done enough of your own work so that when you get triggered by intense situations and sessions, you can manage that without, without being 
knocked off balance by it. So I think, you know, when we do our educational events and our trainings, we're teaching people about the kinds of things that can come up in these sessions and ways to work with them. But we emphasize that the biggest part of it is them doing their own work in order to be present for these long sessions that can be very intense. So I think partly it's temperament for some people. The idea of sitting in in the same session for eight hours is sounds like a terrible idea for other people. You know, they have the more inclination to want to be connected with people in that way. So I think that people's kind of general constitution and their amount of work they've done with their own their own emotional process in order to be able to stay present when it gets intense. As far as the underground goes, frankly, I've always been grateful that some people, there. I think there's some really good ethical underground therapists. There are also some not good, not ethical underground therapists, but that applies to above ground or underground. But I personally have been grateful that some people were willing to take the risk. I mean, a lot of the underground therapists that I'm not aware of that many, but I know some, you know, they were working with these medicines when they were legal and they just were not willing to give up that tool with their patients. They were willing to take the real legal risk of continuing to work underground. So I have admiration for the people that have done that well. And, you know, it is, it's an example of one of the problems with things being underground is you don't know what's going on. And, and for some, some people, no doubt, are harmed by underground therapists. And there's no way, there's no recourse or way to really address that. So bringing it above ground is going to help with that. And also, it's going to bring its own challenges too. Yeah, no, absolutely. And hopefully a lot more, a lot more data so we can understand you know, where this could go and the true scope of MDMA-assisted therapy and other psychedelic therapies. So I know that, you know, one of the genius things that I know Rick talked about when we had him on the podcast back in January was the focus on treating veterans, combat veterans who have severe PTSD with MDMA, because not only is there a huge need, given how much depression, anxiety, and, and ultimately suicide is in that population, but also it has by strong bipartisan support. We obviously want to do what's right for our veterans who served our country. I'd love to hear about other populations and specific populations that you're working, you're currently working with, or you're interested in working with. I mentioned in your bio, you have couples. You know, I'm very interested in healthcare professionals who are burned out, have moral injury. How do we get them to 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 heal and and hopefully have high leverage and treat more patients over their careers? As well as even, you know, I'm, I'm interested in founders and entrepreneurs, right? Many of them who, who already are doing this in the underground, you know, can we help them be less stressed, make more socially conscious companies, et cetera. So I'd just love to hear your, your take on other populations and protocols, maybe how we have to adjust those protocols for those populations, like the couples you're working with. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess there are two ways of thinking of populations. One is groups of people and the other is what is their problem they're struggling with. So, you know, as far as the indication, the problem, the only thing we have significant amount of data on is PTSD. So we don't know about other possible indications, but there have already been some studies with end of life anxiety and social anxiety and people on the autism spectrum, things like that. And there are lots, there's some more investigator initiated trials coming along 
including looking at eating disorders. And actually, a couple of the MAPS therapists from New York are about to start a study with MDMA-assisted therapy for healthcare workers during COVID. Oh, wow. That's awesome. As a former ER doctor, I, I'm, I'm very interested in, you know, helping some of the healthcare people who carry a lot of stress and sometimes don't even know it. <laughs> so, and then, you know, we're required by law to, or the MAPS public benefit is required by law to submit a protocol for pediatric studies. And they'll get a waiver, they're going to ask for a waiver for the six to 12 year old, but there will be a study, presumably, the planning is already in the works for 12 to 18. So I think that's going to be a really interesting population to look at because a lot of people have, you know, so much traumas in childhood and people in our studies have said, boy, I wish I could have had this kind of treatment 20 or 30 years ago instead of all these decades of suffering. Yeah, absolutely. That's super interesting. How about the couple's work that did, you know, what, what's going on with that? Yeah, I think, well, you know, before MDMA was illegal, there were lots of anecdotal reports and some published case reports about using MDMA with couples. And it seemed to be particularly helpful. Actually, my wife and I experienced that with a therapist back in the day. And so it seems to many people report it really helps with communication and people can drop defensiveness and really listen to each other in it in a much more effective way. So I think that's an exciting area. And we really enjoyed the pilot study we did. It was only six couples. And we did it with Candace Monson and Ann Wagner from Toronto, who are both experts in um, cognitive behavioral conjoint therapy, working with couples with PTSD that way. So we combined our method with their method. And you know it was just a pilot study, so a lot more work to be done, but it was, it was exciting preliminary data and I personally really enjoyed working with people because it's just it was so gratifying to see them being able to communicate so much better. Yeah, no, absolutely. That I've definitely read those reports, and that's a very exciting avenue of research. We we also had Bill and Brian Richards on this podcast from Sunstone Therapies. I, I know you know them, and I know them well. Yeah, <laughs> wonderful people, and they have a very interesting dyad study with psilocybin for end of life anxiety, cancer patients and their caregivers, because so much of the, the trauma experience or the anxiety or the sadness, really the depression is experienced by the caregiver. Yeah. Not, not, not necessarily just the, the, the patient. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's very exciting. I was going to ask you too about, you know, a lot of my understanding of psychedelic assisted therapy is again, you're only having one or two or maybe three sessions with the actual medicine. And then, you know, there's very impressive results at six months, 12 months in terms of how long this lasts, this effect lasts. Obviously it's early days, so I'm not sure if there's, you know, five-year, 10-year type of data or if that'll be monitored, but I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, you know, part of my understanding of how these medicines work is that for that period of time while you're in the therapy and then doing integration, you're reframing perspectives. You're able to, you know, change your belief systems around those perspectives. The Michael Paul analogy was, you know, it's like you have these moguls when you're skiing, these tracks that were embedded because they're icy now, these thought patterns. But because of these medicines, you're able to kind of have fresh powder deposited on the slope, and now you're able to form new thought patterns. I would just like to hear, you know, that, that makes sense for things like smoking cessation, PTSD, a reframe changing that. But what about like an ongoing 
you know, chronic type thing where maybe, you know, the MDMA is an empathogen. Can we, is there a world in which you think this low dose MDMA that helps people chronically deal with stress, anxiety, or just, just be better, more flourishing humans? I don't know what, <laughs> that seems like the Holy Grail, but I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. I mean, almost Aldous Huxley-esque with Soma, I think is, is, is one of the way to think about that, which uh, he describes in Brave New World. But yeah, what are your thoughts on like long-term usage? I, I don't think, well, if, if you mean long-term daily or frequent usage, is that what you mean? Or just, yeah, I mean, right now, again, the, the therapy protocol is high do- or like higher dose acute and like it'll, it'll have a long-lasting effect on a specific condition. But what about just like, a, yeah, long-term, not maybe not daily or weekly, but, you know, in psilocybin, there's an LSD, there's citizen science talk about microdosing. I don't know if people microdose MDMA, but, you know, how do you, how do people get to these states of being highly empathic, you know, long-term beyond just having a clinical diagnosis? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I've heard of people microdosing MDMA. I think the whole microdosing idea is a completely different model. And I think that we need, you know, there's not much data about that. So I'm not, you know, I'm I'm not critical of investigating that. But to me, you know, that's talking about the drug and the ongoing, you know, week, at least several times a week, effect on the organism. Our idea is the drug is only a catalyst for the experience. This is our hypothesis, which I think is borne out by the durability of the results. So the idea, the way I see it is, the MDMA is just a catalyst, just like psilocybin would be, or just like holotropic breathwork would be, or just like prolonged meditation, perhaps, or other methods of shifting consciousness. And that opens the possibility of this new experience, sort of like you're talking about. That was actually Mendel Kalin, who a, was a researcher in London. That was his analogy originally, mm. Michael Pollan, I guess, quoted. Anyways, you know, there's some of the neuroscience research is about that, the way that network relationships change. And so it's sort of like new fallen snow. Suddenly you can get out of that rut. You can have a new and unexpected experience. But I think there's a real danger in thinking after that, you need to keep having more medicine rather than taking the time to realize that's a big experience that may take years to integrate, certainly weeks or months. And so I think... The idea of frequent use doesn't appeal to me. I think it's kind of counter to the way I think about this this approach to healing because it's not coming from the medicine. It's coming from the person's own inner capacity to heal once the obstacles are removed and they have some catalyst to help them connect with their own innate capacity to heal. That's how I see it. Now, would it be useful to have another session in a six months or a year or periodic sessions over time? We don't know the answer to that, but I think that is consistent with the model, the way I think of it, that it doesn't mean it would never be helpful to kind of have a another chance to clear away the cobwebs and check in with yourself. And so in our long-term follow-up, and most people said they didn't need any more sessions then, but most of them thought, well, maybe a session in six months or a year to help me kind of reconnect with what the, the realizations and the shifts. So I think that'll be a good thing to look at. Even, you know, even if they're, we've got data, actually our longest follow-up 
was an average of three and a half years. It was a minimum of 17 months, but maximum of five years. It was a separate study after our first MDMA PTSD study. And what we saw was the average PTSD, the CAP score of PTSD symptoms was numerically slightly lower, but statistically the same at, five, at three and a half years as it was at two months Wow! on average. Wow. A few people had relapsed, so, but even taking, those were included in that data. So for the other people, if anything, the improvement in PTSD tended to increase over time. Like in our phase two, 12-month follow-up, a little over half the people no longer met criteria for PTSD at two months. At, at one year, it was two-thirds of the people. So that's consistent with this idea that it's not about more medicine. It's about the process continuing to unfold. That's fantastic data. Thanks for sharing that. And that's really important for our audience to learn about and know. I want to be respectful of your time, so I only had two last questions for you. The, the first is just, what advice do you want to give to our audience about you know, how you've approached your career that maybe they can learn from? Well, I would say don't be afraid to change if something is not as compelling as it once was and something else seems more compelling. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> There's room for more than one career, I think. Well, you know that. <laughs> Yeah, one of my favorite guests we've had in the podcast is Lisa Sanders, who's an internist at Yale. And she started med school as a 37-year-old after a career as a journalist. And she took that journalism career, her medical career, and combined that and made a, a really successful career in medical journalism as the regular author in the New York Times diagnosis column, and which was turned into a Netflix docuseries called Diagnosis. So I love that. And again, your story is fascinating and a good one. I'm glad you didn't have that ego to not go back to psychiatry residency because clearly you've you've had a great impact on many people since then, directly and also indirectly with the work you've done with the research. My last question, is there anything else that you want our audience to know about you, about MAPS, psychedelic assisted therapy, or anything else? I would say let's, let's not lose sight of, uh, as we get justifiably enthusiastic about our reductions in PTSD symptoms, let's really pay attention to the bigger picture of what people are reporting and what these experiences are really like, because I don't want to be reductionist about what's going on. We're far from understanding what's what's really happening here in the broader picture. So I want us to remain curious and realize there's an opportunity to learn some really exciting and basic lessons about the nature of human healing that's a little different from quite different from the dsm disease focused model not that that has no meaning but it's not not the main thing so i i think well i'll end with the quote from stan groff he said used and intelligently psychedelics could be for psychiatry and psychology what a microscope is for biology and a telescope is for astronomy. So we're, we're on the brink of exciting explorations. It's much more than just decreasing DSM symptoms. I couldn't agree more. Dr. David Yaden is a, is a mentor of mine as well, Bit's, Bit's husband, and you know his whole remit at Hopkins is human flourishing, and that's definitely an area of interest. And one reason I've gone back to Hopkins to study with him. So 
Dr. Midhoffer, I'm really glad we were able to have this conversation. I appreciate your time today. And more importantly, again, the work that you've done over decades to help patients directly and then also scale out this work at MAPS, which is truly very exciting. Well, thanks a lot, Shea. It's really fun to talk to you. It's, I love uh, talking to people that are actually really well-informed about this. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I try my best, and I've benefited a lot from talking to people like you and Rick and others who I, I'm very grateful for. So with that, I'm Shiva Guglani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to raise line and strengthen our healthcare system. We're all in this together. Take care. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org/raisethelinepodcast. Mm-hmm.